0: Thanks, guys. Well, good morning. Welcome to almost winter weather, huh? Someone last night was like wishing for snow. I'm like, other than Fernando, who wishes for snow? Oh, stop it. Stop it. (laughs) Well, we are at that point in the book where today we're going to talk about a traditional Christmas subject, which is sin. Sin. We're doing sin today, yeah, and you know, because, because um, I'm not like a traditional preacher who has prepared their sermon and they will just plow through it, Um, this was going to be kind of a long sermon anyway. Last week my wife said, you know, you went a little bit too long, my eyes started to drift back in my head, so, (laughs) Um, and so um, you'll be happy to know that I'm going to split this into two parts, so we're not going to cover the whole thing today, but we are going to talk about sin. Because if we don't understand sin, we don't appreciate the value of our salvation. Now, two weeks ago, we learned that the record of our debt of sin was nailed to the cross, and our debt was paid. How important could sin be if it's been forgiven? And if, if, as it says in chapter one, verse twenty of Colossians, with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, and in three one, if then you have been raised with Christ, and in verse three, for you have died, and your life is hidden in Christ, hidden with Christ in God. Why do we still need to deal with sin? Why does Paul devote so much space here to sin, and in all of his other letters, to putting it to death, to putting it away, to dealing with it? Well, we're going to talk about that today, hopefully put ourselves on the path to putting to death our own sinful nature, because believe it or not, we all have one. It is a part of staying on the narrow path that Jesus told us about. But first, though, let's read God's Word, chapter 3, verses 5 through, we're going to read through 10, but we're probably not going to cover all of that. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Let us pray. Lord God, convict us of our sins. Let your Holy Spirit root out within us those things which separate us from you and that keep us from your holy nature, Lord God. We want to serve you. We want to please you. We want to get rid of these sins, Lord, and we need your help in doing so. Take your word today, plant it in our hearts, that it may grow, and that it may bear the good fruit of making us holier, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week, I said that Paul began this section of the letter with a series of instructions on living the Christian life. He broke it down into what I consider to be five sections. One, guard your mind, which is what we talked about last week, focusing on things above the word. Number two, put off or put to death the deeds of the flesh, which we're going to start talking about today. Number three, love the brethren. Number four, let the word of God dwell in you with thankfulness. And number five, he provides rules for Christian households in ancient Roman times. And so last week we talked about guarding our minds. This week we're going to discuss putting off the deeds of the flesh. Paul told the Colossians in verses 1 through 4 that since they had been raised with Christ, they should act accordingly. If you're a new creation, act like it. Paul summarized the core of the good news back in 1 Corinthians 15:3 through 5 as Christ died, Christ was buried, he was raised, he appeared again and he was exalted to the Father's right hand. That's the good news of the gospel. We died and were buried in baptism in him and raised again as new creations. And we put on a new life for a new man. In the book of Acts, Paul preached to unbelievers that they should repent, believe, be baptized, walk in the newness of life. Their interests should be the same as Christ's interests. There should be no difference. So we guard our minds, we learned last week, by seeking the things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. And we must continually be seeking to obtain the treasures of heaven. And not the philosophies or false heresies of the day, as Ted was talking about that particular one. You know, all of us have one that we've read about, seen, heard about, um, that we're enraged about, or whatever. But the things referred to in the heavenly realm and on the spiritual values that create Christ, I'm sorry, that characterize Christ, those are the things we should be concentrating on. Tenderness, kindness, meekness, patience, wisdom, forgiveness, strength, purity, love. And when we have a life centered on Christ, when we're thinking about Christ, when we're living for Christ, and the life is centered in Christ, we protect ourselves against these false philosophies. That's how we guard our minds. So Paul now, in the letter, tells them to put to death what is earthly in them, and to put off all these earthly practices. But Paul tells the Colossians they've already died, and yet on the other hand, he's telling them that they must put themselves to death. So how can both be true? As long as believers live on earth, their condition, how we live, and their state or position, who we are, what our identity is, don't wholly coincide. As to our states, and theologians would call it positionally, our position or our status, we're perfect. We're without sin. We're wholly justified. We're clean in the eyes of God. Our old self is dead and buried, but as to our condition, the way we actually live, it's a different thing. We're, we're in, in harmony with that position in Christ only in principle. And what we go through in this life is a process called sanctification. Okay? Sanctification is a progressive thing. Some friends of ours, in fact, one of them's here, he calls it trajectory. It's, we're looking for our life to be on this trajectory where we become more and more like Christ. The old life that's still within us is still of the earth as well as on the earth, And yet through Christ, we are progressively sanctified to become more and more like Christ. And we'll talk a little bit more about putting to death and what that means. But it's only when either we die or when Jesus comes again that we're going to be completely conformed to Christ. It's not going to happen before then. And so even though Paul tells us and the Word tells us you need to be this way, you need to be like Christ, none of us can do that. And that won't happen with any of us until we are with the Lord again. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we're being transformed. We haven't been transformed, we're being transformed. Philippians 1.6 tells us, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the date of Jesus Christ. And later in this book, at chapter 3, verse 12, he says, or I'm sorry, in Philippians, he says, "...not that I have already obtained this, or already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own." And in one of my favorite passages, when Jesus tells the man with the boy who throws himself in the fire at Mark 9:23, "...all things are possible for one who believes," Immediately the father of the child cries out and says I believe help me with my unbelief. Because that's that's like me that's like all of us I believe but I I need help. So it's a progressive thing that we go through and it is indeed one of the deep mysteries of God that he's made us new he's made us new creations and yet we still have this old self that clings to us and although we stand perfect in his sight in the name of Jesus Christ We still struggle with our sins, our temptations, and our bad acts. He says to us, like we would say to our own sons and daughters, you're my son, you're my daughter, I love you. Let me help you with your problems. He loves us unconditionally because of who we are in Jesus Christ, and he helps us with our problems. We have died to sin's penalty, but sin's power is still strong, and our flesh is weak. We must continually put sin to death, by yielding to the holy spirit romans 8 13 says for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live many years ago i read a book by one of the great puritan writers john owen i don't know if anybody's read anything but it was called the mortification of sin is the name of the book um not light reading Uh, (laughs) But it had it had a huge impact on my life when I read it, because I was troubled with what we all are troubled with. Why can't I root these things out of my life? Why do I continue to do it? Why do every morning I come back to God and say, I did it again? How can you still love me when I continue to do this again? And so I read this book. It's a bit of a slow reading. It was written in the mid-1600s. Um, and the language is 17th century English, and they probably have newer translations of it. But the book uses for its basis Romans 8.13, which is, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death or mortify the sins of the body, you will live. And he talks in this book about how we are to go to war against sin, actual war against sin, to subdue it, to kill it, to strangle it, so that we can live lives with joy and peace in the Lord. See, Christians must make it their business every day of their life to mortify or put to death the indwelling power of sin we will always struggle against that it is the duty of every christian to do this paul's instruction in colossians 3 5 is clear and direct put to death therefore what is earthly in you pretty simple instruction and then verse 7 you must must put them all away Those are pretty straightforward instructions. Well, all of God's commands are associated with promises. You will not find a command in the Bible that God does not make a promise associated with. It's like two sides of the same coin. And so what's his promise here? The promise is, if you do this, you will live. You will live not only eternal life, which we have by virtue of being in Christ, but we will truly live kingdom lives here, full of love, peace, harmony, joy, grace, fellowship, all of those things that we crave. So if you're the believer, you put to death the deeds of the body or your earthly impulses, you will live. But how do we do that? We've tried and tried and tried, but we have not succeeded in putting away our sins and earthly desires. We put to death the flesh by the Spirit or through the Spirit. Self-help books, checklists, or grim determination. I'm going to quit this today. I am not going to look at this online. I'm not going to take that substance. I'm not going to yell. I'm not. It's not that. Yes, we need to have the desire. We need to make the decision to do it. But self-strength, as we discussed last week, is the substance of all false religions. It's doomed to failure. The key is not the strength of our faith, but rather the object of our faith. And the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. If we have faith that Jesus is the Son of God, sent to fulfill the Father's plan of salvation, we will receive the strength to defeat and put to death our sins. He promises. Remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Ask, seek, knock. Whatever you ask in my name, you will receive. This is one of the things that is according to his will. His will is that we be purified. If we ask for this, he will do it but he's not going to just do that and do it. He could do that, certainly. But no, we need to work at it. We need to be doing something with it as well. And we must take this very seriously because sin is always attacking us. It is always tempting us. And if we do not continually, and I mean all the time, put it to death, it will bring forth great sins. Galatians 5, 19-21 says, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and the like. The Bible gives us plenty of examples of what sin did in the lives of righteous men, like David, Noah, Moses. They did not lose their salvation, but what a price they paid. What a price they paid for their sins. Sin is unquenchable. It is always unsatisfied. Every time it tempts you, every time it entices you, if it had its own way, it would bring about the worst sin of that kind. As Owen says in his book, every unclean thought or glance would become adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. And Sin is deceitful, as it says in Hebrews three thirteen. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Well, and sin and temptation sometimes seems modest at first, doesn't it? Just a little glance, just look in the rearview mirror at the person that you just saw, just a little white lie couple of pens from the office who'll even miss them and it really doesn't matter i deserve those a comment about the person sitting next to you at church or wherever not maliciously just a matter of observation just for their own (laughs) (laughs) self-improvement yeah you know so i'm not alone at least thank you for that okay but once it gets its foot in the door it escalates it opens that door further but since we've already let it in, we don't take notice of what it has done to make us fall from God's standard. We become desensitized to it, to that little sin. And then creep sets in, that creep sets in. For those of you that are old like me, you remember the old westerns and war movies where death was fairly clean and sterile, right? Somebody got shot, they fell down, and you, know, you kind of knew they were dead, but you didn't see very much. But in the 70s, there was a movie called The Wild Bunch, which was the first movie that had really graphic violence, and it was horrific. It was terrible, and everybody's like, oh, that's terrible. And I was horrified by it. It was really hard to watch, but we became desensitized, didn't we? And now culture loves to watch horror movies showing unspeakable violent acts, and we don't think anything about it. We don't think anything about it. Or with regard to homosexuality, as another example, little by little, the culture's been desensitized to the... Abhorrence of it. Right? Bill Mayer, I don't know if you're know the comedian Bill Mayer, once said, and not that long ago, like three or four years ago, he said, You know, the, this is never really going to become a big thing because people just aren't really comfortable with seeing two dudes kissing. Okay? And he was right about that then, right? But over now, you see over and over unspeakable acts, much worse than two dudes kissing, right? Because we've become desensitized to it. We let it in the door. And we became desensitized to it. And since that sin has not been put to death, it continues on and it presses on because it is seeking our total relinquishment of God and opposition to sin's way. It wants to go away with God in our lives. It wants to open the way for further sin. There are no half measures for sin It's not going to be content with those little sins. That's its aim. And although we see this clearly in the society around us, we see these things that have happened, do we see it within ourselves with our little sins, with the little sins that we're willing to put up with? Do we actively take steps to put to death those besetting sins which live within us? See, either we are killing the sin or it is killing us. One of the two. We are at war. We tend to take that lightly, this concept of war. We see it about, yeah, war, eh. But be sure this is a real war with real consequences for each and every person sitting here. Paul says in verse six of today's reading, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. As saints and believers, new creations, we avoid that wrath, that judgment for our sins, but we will suffer the consequences of those sins. And we all can think of something in our life that we did that we've been forgiven for, but man, we're still paying the price now. We still see it happening. And we may even be chastised by God for those sins. That happens too. So we must be constantly fighting this battle. Paul describes this in Romans 6 6, when he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And again, might be brought to that, okay? It was crucified, but that it might be brought to that. And again, Paul describes a process. Sin, he says, is crucified and fastened to the cross, here and in other of his epistles. And why is that? So that the body of death might be destroyed. The power of sin weakened and abolished little by little, and that in the future we might not serve sin, and that in the meantime its power to tempt us might grow weaker and weaker. Now the purpose of a crucifixion was not to kill the person immediately. It was to make the person suffer and die a slow and painful death. And it's like when Paul says that sin's been crucified, it's been hung on the cross, but it doesn't die immediately, just like Jesus didn't die immediately, and none of those people died immediately. What happens... They they get harder time breathing, they begin to suffer, their breathing slows down, they lose their strength, and eventually they die, and that's what Paul is describing as the process of sin in our lives. It's a process, but once it's nailed there, that's the process that begins, and it's up to us to continue that process. But often, our efforts to kill sin are restricted to those situations where sin comes to life And it's some sin that's really troubling, that's causing us a lot of problems. It drives us to our knees, sends us to God, making us cry out for forgiveness, promising we'll never do it, we'll never do this thing again. And yet, a lot of times, that's the religion of self works again. Because once the crisis passes, the attempts to kill the sin pass as well, and the sin returns to its former self. We've all experienced that. Psalm 78, verses 32 through 38 speak of this. It says, in spite of all this, this is the Israelites now, they still sin. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath, and their years in terror. And when he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the Most High God, their Redeemer. Okay? So bad thing happened, driven to their knees, go back to God, God, please, please, please. But then the next, but they flattered him with their mouth. They lied to him with their mouth. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward God. They were not faithful to his covenant. And that's the way we are a lot of time with sins, isn't it? We really want to, oh, Lord, please remove this from me. And then the crisis passes, and we're back at it again. Their hearts and our hearts were not truly set on putting sin to death. They want a relief from their guilt, but they lied to him about their willingness to put their sin to death. Their heart was not steadfast toward God. Are we really willing to put our sins to death? Okay. Because I know I've got some that are really hard to get rid of. You know, I'm sure that some other people have that too. Are they your secret little friends? Are they my secret little friends? I won't do it for a while, but it's not that bad. But we need to put them to death. How do we feel about our sin? Do we feel that it's not so bad? Do we feel that it only happens every once in a while? Do we make excuses that, well, I was provoked? I was provoked. I'm really not that way. I was just provoked. Do we fail to take responsibility for the sin which continues to live in us even after we become born again in Jesus Christ? To kill a man or any other living thing means to take away its strength and its power and its vigor so that it cannot act or exert itself. Paul compares throughout his letters indwelling sin to a person called the old man. You've all read about the old man with its wisdom, its subtlety, and its strength. And Paul says this must be killed, put to death, and have its power, life, vigor, and strength taken away. By who? By the Spirit of God. It is slain by the cross of Jesus Christ, and yet still this work of sanctification, or what's called in the Bible the death of the old man, continues throughout our lives as Paul says in Galatians 5.17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. We must guard against half measures. Killing a sin means exactly that, leaving no life in it whatsoever. If it is our duty to kill sin, as the Bible tells us, we must constantly be at work, And as Owen tells us again, he that is appointed to kill an enemy, if he leaves striking before the other ceases living, does but half his work. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in good season we will reap if we do not give up. Hebrews 12.1 tells us, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sing which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And 2 Corinthians 7.1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion and the fear of God. And how do we get the strength to continue in this battle? Paul tells us. It's through the Spirit of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ is our life. Our life is hidden in Christ. We are in Christ. Christ's Spirit lives in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we draw our power for our war against sin from that Holy Spirit. Christ died, died to destroy the work of the devil. He gave his life for that. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's from Titus 2.14. He will not fail in that intention. That was his intention was to free us And he will not fail in that intention. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 says, Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he may present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any blemish that she may be holy. Christ promises. And by virtue of his death and blood that he shed for us, he will accomplish it. It is this Spirit who enables us to put sin to death. He alone fully convicts the heart of the evil, guilt, and danger of the sin which must be put to death. He convicts us, He lets us know. He alone shows us the fullness of Jesus Christ for our cure. We would not know that if it were not for the Spirit. He alone brings the cross of Christ into our hearts with its sin-killing power, for by the Spirit we are baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit alone is the author and finisher of our sanctification. And He prays for us when we do not know what to pray for. As Paul says in Romans, when we are at our wit's end and we don't even know, the Spirit prays for us because Christ is in us and He knows what we need. So having established through God's word that it is our duty as believers to be constantly putting sin to death through the work of the Spirit, let's move on to those particular sins that concern Paul in this letter to the Colossians, and we'll cover just a few of them. In verses 5 through 9, Paul gives two lists of sins that we need to kill, which include some of the more common and troubling sins that everybody faces. These are not exhaustive lists. And we can see in other letters that Paul wrote that there are other sins he demands be put to death. But the first list, which is sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, these are sins of feelings, sins of desires, sins of perverted love, body sins. The second list, in in verse 8, Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to each other. These are social sins that destroy the unity and joy of fellowship, the fellowship in the church and fellowship with other people, and they result in hate. These are talk sins. If you notice the pattern, in the first, Paul speaks first of the acting out, the sexual sin, the sexual immorality, and then goes back to the mindset, which is greed, which is idolatry. And in the second set, he starts with the mindset, which is anger, and he goes to the working out, which is lying. Well, the first sin is sexual immorality. In fact, all of the sins in this section have to do with sexual vice or sin. And the reason for this and the reason for Paul's focus here is that, first of all, the Roman culture was very sexually oriented, but, but primarily the reason that it becomes a great place for Paul to teach is that the husband-wife relationship, which was established in the very first part of the Bible, is, the, is first and foremost the most profound human interrelationship in which faith has to be proved. The marriage relationship is, is critical. It is the fundamental relationship in this world, in our culture, and yet we are seeing an effort to destroy it, and we must stand up against that. But Paul says that we're going to look at that here because this is where Satan focuses his efforts. Because it is the basic primary relationship existing between all human beings, I'm going to destroy it, Satan says. I'm going to disarm it. It's why the war over sexuality and marriage these days is being fought so violently, because it is a battleground. It is critically important. In the Roman world, sexuality was shaped by dominance, by status, and by indulgence. For Paul, it was shaped by holiness, love, and fidelity. Boy, those are two, two different sets of standards. Paul relied extensively on Leviticus 18, which was God's covenant promise to the Israelites that clarified how to live and how to set them apart from the pagans, including an extensive list of prohibited sexual relations. And I suggest you go back this week and review that chapter because it talks a lot about what's going on now. And for people that say, well, you know, that's old stuff and it doesn't apply anymore. Its culture has changed. It does apply. Paul continued to talk about it and reemphasize that. And so when Paul says sexual immorality, the Greek word that's used there is pornea, from which we get the English word pornography. In the Greek, the word was originally used for a prostitute or prostitution, but in the New Testament, its meaning includes any form of illicit sex. And in contrast with the prevailing attitudes in the ancient world, the Bible strictly forbids any sexual activity outside the marriage bond between a man and a woman. In the Roman culture, a wife was for procreation and everything else was for recreational sex, and they engaged in a lot of it. And so Paul was dealing with that, and knowing the power of sexual sin, you can see what Paul was up against. Because he has this bunch of Gentiles, these former pagans that had lived this life, and now Paul is telling him, you've got to put this to death because you're not that way anymore, right? Immorality always heads the list of the deeds of the flesh. As in Galatians 5.19 and it's never proper behavior for the saints. People ask, what's God's will for my life? What do I need to do? Where do I need to go? Go to 1 Thessalonians 4, three. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's number one. Because God knows that's our big deal. Paul exhorts the Colossians to put to death what they had known as Gentiles, recreational sex outside of marriage. Well, next he says impurity and passion. Passion is sometimes translated as lust. The Greek word used for lust is pathos. And in Romans 1.26, Paul connects pathos with same-sex relationships. But Paul's admonition here is broader than just that. It's a more general term than immorality, and it goes beyond the sexual act itself, which is what uh, immorality is, to the evil thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what Paul's getting at here. So you have the action, now you've got the evil thoughts and intentions because Jesus said in Matthew 5.28, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Boy, you know, and those of you who are old enough to remember President Carter, Jimmy Carter, he said that, and he was mocked and ridiculed for that. You know, and nowadays, Very few people say it, and when you say anything about that, like Vice President Pence, when he says, I will never put myself in a situation where I'm alone with a woman, he's like, people made fun of him. Well, that's archaic, that's stupid, that's crazy. But these people had the courage to stand up for God's Word and say things that are absolute truths. So, Jesus then goes on to say in Mark 7, 21, 22, from within, out of the hearts of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, and foolishness. Impurity is one of the deeds of the flesh in Galatians five nineteen and it is not to be indulged in by believers because it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. And as Jesus said, evil behavior begins with evil thoughts, and so the battle against all sin begins in the mind. Evil thoughts produce evil behavior. Impure thoughts produce impure behavior. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Pure thoughts produce pure behavior. Well, next we have evil desire. It appears that passion is the physical side and evil desire is the mental side of the same thing. And then Paul last mentions greed or covetousness because greed and covetousness is the evil root of all of those previous sins. It's also the last of the Ten Commandments, and it's not a coincidence for that because covetousness is the cause of all of the preceding sins. Greed is the insatiable desire to have more, to have what's forbidden, to have what you have no right to have. Because of that, it is the source of fights and quarrels, as James says at 4.2. And because it places selfish desires above obedience to God, greed amounts to idolatry. Covetousness is the root cause of all sin. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. They coveted what God had, that power. But God says... Don't covet. But again, he makes a command. What's his promise? Don't covet. Why? Because I'll provide everything you need. Don't commit adultery. Why? Because I'll give you the wife or the husband that you need. Don't steal. Why? Because I'll give you everything you need in order to live your life. God makes that promise. There is no need to be covetousness. It comes from that greed, that that evil thought in our heart. And the antidote for covetousness is contentment contented person does not desire to violate another person sexually it does not covet something that another person owns paul said in philippians four eleven, i have learned to be content in whatever circumstances i am in contentment comes from trusting god the basis of that trust is our knowledge of god who he is and his purposes for his people, as revealed in Scripture and as revealed in our own circumstances, God has come through for all of us time and again. Time and again. So as we are daily seeking to put sin to death, we must also seek to to cultivate contentment through our trust in God. Whatever he gives us or does not give us, we should be content with that. And Paul now gives us two reasons for putting sin to death. The first is that Sin brings God's judgment or wrath. And the second is that sin is a part of our past. It's what we used to be. It's not what we are now. A.W. Pink says God's wrath is his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It is the displeasure and indignation of divine equity against evil. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. Now, clearly, unbelievers will experience the full force of God's wrath. And that will not be a pretty thing. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And those that are doing that will experience the wrath of God unless, of course, they repent. As believers, we will not experience the judgment of God, the wrath of God against our sin because of the saving work of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that we have been delivered from the wrath to come. We are not destined for wrath, says the same book at 5-9. Paul is telling the Colossians that those who are Christ and have been made one with Him and who love Him and want to serve Him would not even want to participate in those kinds of behaviors that are characteristic of those that will feel His wrath. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to be a part of that? You know, parents, we all say that to our kids. Why Do you want to hang out? We if everybody's going to jump off the cliff, would you want to jump off the cliff? You know, But it's the same thing. It, it's the same argument. We don't listen to it either, but we expect our kids to listen to it. The children of God should not want to act like the children of wrath. Sin does not ever, ever bring blessing. It never, ever brings true happiness. It always brings guilt. It always brings shame. And although... We do not receive wrath as a result of our sin. We are subject to God's chastening. Hebrews twelve five and 6 reminds us, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God always reacts against sin. The unbeliever experiences his eternal wrath. The believer his loving chastening. All who pursue sin will suffer consequences. And if you are here today and are deserving of the wrath of God and have not experienced the forgiveness of your sins through the saving work of Jesus Christ, then I invite you today to believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins. God raised them from the dead and to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord of your life and of this universe. And if you confess your sins, repent of them, and turn to Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will be saved from the wrath to come. You will avoid that wrath of God, which will certainly come. So avoid the wrath of God. Do not act like those who are children of wrath. Be different from those around you. And there's another set of sins coming up, which we're going to discuss next week. And those are the sins that are more likely to affect us in the congregation about sins of the mouth, sins of our speech, sins of our intentions, lying and things of that nature. So you'll have to come back and hear that. But in the meantime, put your mind to work and your heart to work with the Holy Spirit to put sin to death in your life. Do not minimize your sins. Do not make excuses for your sins. Live a holy life as God wants you to live. Well, today we're going to do the Sacrament of Communion or the Ordinance of Communion. And um, if the elders or the ushers would come up to, uh, to serve the elements, I would appreciate it. And this is a good...